Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, President and Founder of CATRA, the Canadian Old-Time Radio Alliance, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Canadians in Old-Time Radio. Tonight, from our Made in Canada file, we have an episode of Wayne and Schuster from January 8th, 1953. Thursday night and Christie's, bakers of fine biscuits for 100 years, present Wayne and Schuster. Yes, Christie's, makers of the famous premium crackers and the sensational new 4-in-1 inner seal pack present the Wayne and Schuster show with lovely Terry Dale. Merry Christmas, Samuel Hersenhorn and his orchestra, yours truly, Herb May, and starring Christie's Men of the Half Hour, Johnny Wayne and Frank Schuster. Thank you, Bonzo. <laughs> and good evening, friends and leftovers from John and Judy. This is Johnny Wayne welcoming you to our second show in 1953. We have a wonderful audience in the studio tonight. We have some of the sales staff of Christie's. And right in the front row, we have an entire wedding party. There are the bridesmaids. There's the best man. There's the groom. There's the bride. And her father's here, too. How do you like that? A white shotgun for weddings. That's clever, yes. Anyway, welcome. And... Uh, good evening, Mr. Wayne. Oh, Frank, she used to say you look very handsome tonight. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I hate a quitter, don't you? <laughs> well, Frank, what's new? Well, Johnny, I've been reading a very interesting book. It's called Great Canadians. Great Canadians. Yeah, and it's all about our country's greatest men. Uh-huh. You know, the explorers, the scientists, the doctors. And I've been wondering, maybe I could have made my mark in some other profession. Maybe I shouldn't have been a comedian. Why, Frank, how can you say that? You shouldn't have been a comedian. Why, why, you're a natural. You've got, uh... Mm, you've got, um... And you've got, um... Hey, maybe you're right. I hate a quitter, don't you? Look, Frank, what have you got against being a comedian? Oh, I don't know. It's not dignified. What? Huh? I I'm always playing the fool. You know, I've never even told my mother what I do. No kidding. If she ever found out I was a comedian, it would break her heart. Really? Yeah, she thinks I'm selling stolen cars in Windsor. <laughs> so what would you rather have been? Well, I don't know. They're all... Isn't that great? Yeah, that's... What would you rather have been? That's pretty neat. Yes, yes. But I don't... For a comedian, that's very grammatical. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't know. You know, John, there are all sorts of jobs. There are. Yeah, some people work with their heads. 
Some people work with their hands. Yeah, and then there's mounted policemen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious, John. You're... Oh, you're serious, John? Well, yes, I'm, I'm fun-loving Frank. Oh, glad to know you. <laughs> Now, serious, right? You know, there's some... I'm sorry I wasn't a doctor. What? I said, I'm sorry I wasn't a doctor. Don't be silly. Look at all the lives you saved. <laughs> I don't know. Look, I could have had a job with my uncle, the butcher. Oh, your uncle, the butcher? Yeah, he started off with a little store, and today he's known as Schuster the Sausage King. <laughs> Schuster the Sausage King? That's right. His sausages were different. You know the way others are tied on the end with a string? Yeah. Well, he doesn't use any string. He just lets them hang down with the bottom open. <laughs> You must have seen them. Schuster's sloppy salamis. <laughs> oh, sure, I've seen them. He doesn't wrap them up. They're handled by butchers everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Johnny, if you had your life to live over again, would you stay in show business? Of course I would, Frank. My people have always been in show business. My grandfather was one of the top magicians in the country. He was known as the Great Wayne. What an act he had. Oh, was it good? Well, you know, most magicians saw a lady in half. Uh-huh. He had a switch. He used to come out on stage and glue two midgets together. <laughs> And then there was my sister. She, she was shot from a cannon. Shot from a cannon? She worked in a circus? No, in a puffed rice factory. <laughs> and as for me, well, ever since I was a child, it was my ambition to be a clown. Be a clown? That's one of our favorite songs. Well, introduce me and I'll start it off. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny Wayne stepping into the spotlight. <laughs> and now... <laughs> and now, here's Johnny Wayne crawling out of the spotlight. Never mind. All right. I'll remember forever when I was but three, Mama, who was clever, remarking to me, Son, when you're grown up and want everything nice, I've got your future sewn up if you'll take my advice. Hey! Be a clown, be a clown. All the world loves a clown. Show them tricks, show them tricks, tell them jokes, tell them jokes, and you'll always stop with top folks. Dress in huge baggy pants And you'll ride a road to romance A butcher or a plumber, ladies, never embrace A barber for a bow would be a social disgrace They all will come to call if you can fall on your face To be a clown, be a clown, be a clown Hey! Second chorus Let's sing it in tune, shall we'll we? Try. Be a clown, be a clown all the world loves a clown. Be a crazy buffoon. And the lovely ladies will swoon. Be a crack jackanapes. And they'll imitate you like apes. If you're a struggling artist, you're an unimportant guy. If you're a struggling scientist, you barely will get by. But brother, how they'll pay to hear you say that you die. Be a clown, be a clown. You know, the mark of a thoughtful hostess is a good taste. And it's always a matter of good taste to serve Christie's Ritz. Imagine your dining room table perfectly set for dinner, the crystal gleaming, the silver shining. Every detail is just right. Then you add that note of distinctive good taste. Christie's Ritz. When you serve these delicately brown, delicious little crackers, you're adding that extra touch that pleases every guest. The marvelous nut-like tang and slightly salty flavor of Ritz adds so much appeal to soups, salads, spreads, and beverages. 
So if you're the sort of hostess who likes to keep your table a picture of perfect taste, serve Canada's favorite crackers, the best that money can buy, Christie's Ritz. For the family or when guests drop in, be sure to put on the Ritz. Remember, nothing tastes as good as Ritz, but Ritz, that's Christie's. Makers of fine biscuits for 100 years. Thank you, Herb Man. Now, here she is, our singing gal, Miss Terry Dale. Nice singing, Terry. Thanks, Johnny. By the way, I'm throwing a party after the show. I'd like you to attend. A party? Yes, it'll be quite an affair. There'll be soft lights, sweet music, champagne, paper hats, noisemakers, and lots of fun. Mmm, sounds great. Who's going to be there? Just you and me. (laughs) I'm sorry, Johnny. I'm sorry. I'm busy. How do you like that? Well, I know why she turned me down. It isn't her. It's her family. They've always come between us. Darn her husband and those four children. Say, John. Oh, yes, Frank. Look, I've been looking at the ads in the paper showing the new 1953 automobile. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful, aren't they? Oh, they sure are. The, the, the new features in these cars are really amazing. New features, eh? Oh, wonderful. You should see some of the accessories. You know, one car I saw had sterling silver ashtrays and uh, mink hubcaps, a barbecue pit in the back seat, and a set of bumper wipers. Bumper wipers? You mean windshield wipers? No, I mean bumper wipers. You push a button and it scrapes off the pedestrians. Gad, what'll Oshawa think of next? That's that's nothing, John. That's the way I felt about it. Yeah. 
No. No, I mean you should see some of these cars. I saw one 1953 model. It was amazing. It had a telephone in it. Now, Frank, that's not new. Lots of cars have a telephone in them. With an operator? <laughs> see what you mean. There's one company that gives you a house trailer attached to every car you buy. A house trailer? What for? Well, it gives you a place to live while you're looking for a place to park. <laughs> Frank, that's progress for you. Things are moving ahead. You know, there's one company that's working on a car that's really revolutionary. Uh-huh. doesn't use gasoline. It's an electric automobile. An electric automobile? How does it work? Very simple. You just plug it in and it runs. Of course, there's one slight drawback. What's that? You need an awfully long cord. <laughs> and in Toronto, it has to be 25 cycles. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. Seriously, John. Are you seriously, John? Yeah, I'm seriously, John. <laughs> okay. After, after looking at these models, I, I kind of got the bug for a new car. You know, we ought to get one. Yeah, but Frank, our old car is still good. I know, but I'd prefer one of these new rakish 53 models. Really? Yeah, I want to see something with a long nose, a heavy body, and a big rear bumper. All right, fellas. <laughs> Here's one now. Yeah. <laughs> That's Herb May. Oh, yes, that rumble seat fooled me. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Herb. Look, Frank is... Trying to talk me into getting one of these new cars. Well, it's about time. That thing you're driving is pretty dilapidated. Dilapidated indeed. Yeah. You're talking about a 1923 moon. <laughs> yeah, we used to have an Oakland, but the window blinds wore out. <laughs> what a car. What's wrong with our car? Well, it looks like a garbage can with headlights. <laughs> what? Everybody laughs at it. Look, May, it happens to be a popular car. Why, every day it's filled up. With people? No, with garbage. Frank! <laughs> Look, Herb, that's a good car, although I'll admit it is a little old. A little old? Don't you remember last Sunday? My grandmother is 90 years old, and she passed you on the highway. Well, so what? She was walking. <laughs> yeah, but she was wearing her low heels. You know, Johnny Herb's right. Everybody laughs at our car. We've got to get a new one. Well, okay. Let's go down to the showrooms and take a look at the new car. Ah, swell, John. Well, I'm going to miss that old moon. Ah, she still looks nice with that foxtail hanging on the rear bumper. Yes, sir. Say, uh, I always meant to ask you, John. Yeah? The foxtail should be hanging from the radiator. Why is it hanging from the rear bumper? Well, why not? That's where the fox wears it. <laughs> Come on, Frank. Let's go and get a new car, okay. eh? Look, John, there it is. The showroom of the new 1953 Bushwhacker special. Yep. Well, let's go in. Okay, eh? fine. Hey, look at the crowd standing around that model. Yeah. Hey, look at that chassis. What lines? What a paint job, eh, John? Yeah, she's a cute kid, but where are the cars? <laughs> oh, well, they're right over here. Oh, oh here comes the salesman. Well, uh, what can I do for you, gentlemen? Gentlemen? <laughs> it's a buyer's market. Yes, sir. Ah, uh, we're... Uh, sir, we're interested in getting a new car. I see. Well, what would you prefer, the Super Deluxe model or something in the lower-priced field? No, we're Wayne and Schuster. Oh, why didn't you say so? Bob skates next door. Ah, <laughs> uh, look, we want the finest car you have, and we'd like a demonstration. Oh, uh, certainly. I'll call our sales manager. Oh, Madam Hooperdink. Madam Hooperdink. Look at that. Oh, no, Madam Hooperdink, you are the sales manager here? Yes, indeedy do. And if you'll follow me, I'll take you for a little spin in one of our cars. Wait a minute. You're, you're going to take us for a spin? Uh, are you a careful driver? Oh, I have to be careful. I have no license. What? <laughs> oh, you won't.
won't regret this as long as you live. And driving with me, that won't be long. Now, uh, wait a minute, Madam Humperdinck, I think... Ah, uh, here we are. All right, gentlemen, let's get into the car. Come on. Oh, all right. right. Now, that's fine. Oh, just a minute. Somebody stole the steering wheel. You're sitting in the back seat. Oh, of course. <laughs> now, uh, here we are. There. Well, I, I'll start the motor. Listen to this, gentlemen. <laughs> That's real horsepower. <laughs> well, here we go out into the street. Ah, isn't this car a dream? And look how well it handles. Well, let's go down a new street. I'm tired of running down the same old places. Oh, no. Well, I'll make a left turn here. Now, I'll just stick out my hand. <laughs> oh, silly me. I forgot I washed the windows. <laughs> Johnny, what are you looking for? Parachutes. I'm going to bail out. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. She's not driving that badly. She's only doing 20 miles an hour. I know, but on the sidewalk. Madam <laughs> Humperdinck. That is out. Look, please, watch the traffic. Oh, I can't. It makes me nervous. Oh, no. Oh, tell me the truth, Madam Humperdinck. Have you ever, uh, have you knocked over many pedestrians? Oh, I don't want to boast. I've had my share of good luck. Oh, what? <coughs> oh! Ah, that was a fat one. Hey, Johnny, this is awful. I... Johnny, Johnny, where are you? Let me out. I'm in the glove compartment. <laughs> oh, no. Madam Humperdinck, just stop here and let us off. Oh, don't be silly. I haven't demonstrated the brakes yet. The brakes? You can stop on a dime. Madam Humperdinck, don't try any fast stops in the traffic. My dear boy, we're on the outskirts of Toronto, and there's very little traffic here. Now, watch this stop. Here we go. <laughs> Madam Humperdinck, we're walking home. All the way from Montreal? Oh, no. Well, friends, nearly all the automobile companies have introduced their new 1953 models to the public. As a salute to the automotive industry, Wayne and Schuster prepared a radio history of the motor car from its earliest beginnings to the present day. We present this thrilling documentary called... The History of the Automobile, or The March of Payments on Time. This is the history of the automobile, the romantic story of the motor car. Tonight we will trace the fascinating chapters in the romance of the automobile back to the very beginnings. The word automobile comes from the old Greek phrase, autos mobiles, meaning Get away from that cocktail lounge. You're parked in front of a loading zone. <laughs> to find the real beginnings of the automobile, let us go back to prehistoric times when cavemen roamed the earth, the dawn of civilization. The time, two million B.C., the dawn of civilization. The scene, a cave. In it sit our two favorite cavemen, 
Ug Wayne and Mug Schuster. Here they are. Do the tango, do the tango. 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 Daylight or standard? Don't bother me with silly questions. I'm occupied. Uh, what are you doing? Well, I've been a busy little prehistoric man. <laughs> I've just invented something that will revolutionize civilization. Uh, you're kidding. I'm in deadly earnest. <laughs> I've invented a new type of vehicle. I take four wheels, mm -hmm. put a seat on top, and I ride around in it. I call it an automobile. <laughs> Uh, an automobile? Yeah, I've been riding around all day in it. I've been having a lot of fun with my automobile. Hey, that's a pretty good invention, but uh, where do you get all your gas? Huh? I said, where do you get all your gas? Well, it's my own fault. I eat too fast. <laughs> so much for prehistoric days. As the centuries passed, man continued his search for new and better ways of transportation. Man learned to domesticate animals and harness them. All types of animals. Horses, camels, oxen, burros. Uh, excuse me, John. Yes, Frank? Uh, what's a burro? Burro, B-U-R-R-O. It's a kind of a jackass. Oh, a jackass? Well, what does one look like? Frank, you mean to stand there and look me in the face and say you've never seen a jackass? <laughs> and how come I never noticed that till now? <laughs> Johnny, who, who first thought of using animals as a means of transportation? Oh, the early farmers. The farmers hitched up all kinds of animals, animals like these. I'm a horse. I pull plenty of farmers. I'm an ox. I pull plenty of farmers. I'm a mule. I pull plenty of farmers. I'm a cow. A cow? Do you pull plenty of farmers? No, with me, it's the other way around. <laughs> The years... <laughs> the years continued to roll by, and new chapters were written in the romance of transportation. Yes, new things were invented to make traveling more interesting. The coach, improved roads, the farmer's daughter, and then... <laughs> in the beginning of the 19th century, the West opened up, with, and with the West came the stagecoach. <laughs> We present a thrilling scene from the history of transportation. The first stagecoach ride through Indian country. It is dusk along the Navajo Trail. The desolate silence is suddenly broken by a new sound. The sound of rumbling wheels. And into view comes the stagecoach. Inside this coach sit the presidents of the newly formed Wells Fargo Stagecoach Company. It's Johnny Wells and Frank Fargo. Uh, say Wells. What is it, Fargo? How come you got the good name? Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. I tell you, Fargo, this is a great day. This here stagecoach of ours is a step forward in transportation. Sure is, partner. I'm plumb glad we got rid of that old stagecoach. Didn't have no wheels. Didn't have no wheels? What held it up? Bandits. <laughs> hey, hey, that was a little old joke. Yeah, but that little and that old... <laughs> 
Well, so far, so good. We've been riding through the Indian country, and so far, not a sign of them pesky redskins. Well, I only hope our luck hey, is going... Hey, hey, hold on, Wells. Look up ahead. Galloping coyotes, it's the Indians. The Indians, where's my gun? I've got to get out of here. Gun, you don't need it. What are you talking about? Them Indians are coming right at us. Don't worry, we're as safe as can be. <laughs> Look at them come. <laughs> Jumping prairie dogs, the Indians are running away. They look scared to death. <laughs> That's right. I got something up in front of that stagecoach that would frighten anybody. No kidding. What do you got? <laughs> Woman driver. <laughs> Yes, that was the West, and the year was 1853, a great year for transportation. Uh, excuse me, John. Yes, Herb. 1853 was a great year for something else, too. Why, what do you mean, said he, <laughs> feeling the sponsor's hot breath on his neck? <laughs> <laughs> Why, 1853 was the year Canadians tasted their first Christie biscuit, a momentous occasion. Oh, it must have been, Herb. Oh, yes. Can't you picture those pioneers sitting in their covered wagons eating those delicious Christie's biscuits? Oh, I can, Herb. You know, my family were pioneers. Oh? They traveled in a covered wagon. Yeah, and if you would have seen his family, you'd know why the wagon was covered. <laughs> what the... <laughs> Would you like to hear more about Christie's? Well, do we have a choice? No. Then we'd like to hear more about Christie's. <laughs> Carry on, Herb. You know, it's not too easy for the lady who runs the house to find something to eat that pleases everybody. But that's just what she gets when she buys a package of crisp, oven-fresh Christie's Ritz. These delicious little Ritz crackers appeal to every member of the family. Dad likes them with his favorite soup at Sunday dinner. Junior and his pals like Christie's Ritz and peanut butter after school. And Sister says that Ritz are always a hit at her bridge clubs when she serves them with thinly sliced Swiss cheese. Yes, they're all agreed that the only cracker to serve is Christie's Ritz, the delicious little cracker with the perfect nut-like flavor and slightly salty tang. At mealtime or snack time, the whole family knows that nothing tastes as good as Ritz but Ritz. Never be without these wonderful crackers on your pantry shelf. Ask your grocer for Christie's Ritz tomorrow. That's Christie's. Bakers of fine biscuits for 100 years. Thank you, Herb May. Now back to our history of the automobile. Chapter 2, The Automobile Arrives, or... Look, in the air. Is it a bird? No. Is it an aeroplane? No. Well, what is it? It's a pedestrian. It wasn't until the 20th century that the automobile, or horseless carriage, as it was known, made its first appearance on the streets. Well, gee, John, I guess that was an exciting day. Well, for most people, it was the dawn of a new era. But for my uncle, the automobile meant the beginning of the end. How come? He was a horse thief. Oh. <laughs> anyway, who will ever forget that scene when the first car was unveiled by its inventor, Henry Ford? The time, the beginning of the century. The place, Greenfield, Michigan. Surrounded by an admiring crowd, brilliant young Henry Ford shows them his first model. Gentlemen, gentlemen, here before your very eyes is the first automobile. I've devoted most of my life to perfecting it. Hey, Henry, get a horse. Now, <laughs> uh, now, 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 neighbors. You can laugh if you want to, but this is a great moment. This is the first automobile. Say, Henry. Yes, Charlie. How much do you want for that there automobile? Uh, I'm sorry, it's already been sold. Already been sold? Who bought it? A used car dealer. What? 
Yes, those were the beginnings, and quickly inventors began to perfect this new amazing contrivance. Great inventors whose names can be found in the Automotive Hall of Fame. Men after whom cars have been named. Men like these. I'm Henry Ford. They named a car after him. I'm Walter Kreiser. They named a car after him. I'm Henry Kaiser. They named a car after him. I'm an old schmo. An old schmo? Did they name a car after you? Why, certainly, the old schmobile. Oh, no. Each year... <laughs> Each year brought new exciting innovations in automobiles. From Europe came inventors to add their knowledge. Frank, are we a European guest? Yes, John. Tonight, standing at our microphone, we have Austria's greatest automotive expert, author of that great book, How to Teach a Woman to Drive, which was responsible for the success of his next book, What to Do Until the Doctor Comes. <laughs> Here he is, Professor Johann von Wayne. How was your day, Schnucky? <laughs> So you are an automotive expert? My dear Knabber, you're looking at the greatest automotive expert in the world. Why, the women drivers of Vienna have voted me the man they would most like to put the clutch on. <laughs> well, I understand you invented a great European automobile. You're right, it's a great automobile. Well, what's it called? Well, in Vienna, it was known as the Schnuckeldorfer Aufgeblüten Ingedieten Schnitzelbank and Blimegietel Super 6. <laughs> well, I see. Well, what's it called in English? Jeep. <laughs> That's a good one, eh, Schnooky? <laughs> Crazy man. Yeah, that's cool. Cool, yeah, cool. cool. Yes. Well, well, tell me, Professor. Yeah? Uh, what is your latest invention? I'm glad you asked. At last, I can reveal to the world my latest discovery. It's a windshield. A windshield? A windshield. Oh, windshield. Windshield, windshield yeah. yeah. A wonderful windshield. It's completely shatterproof, shockproof, and breakproof. You can hit it with a hammer. You can jump on it. You can beat it with an axe, but you can't break it. Well, that's amazing, Professor. That windshield will revolutionize the entire industry. Yes, it will, but first I must straighten out one little thing. Well, what's that? You can't see through it. <laughs> Goodbye, Snooky. So ends our history of the automobile. But is it really ended? No. Man's search for better things never ends. Tonight, I'd like you to meet a man who represents the search for better things. This man dedicated his life to a great search and came up with one of the greatest discoveries in the history of the automobile. Will you tell us your success story? It's very simple. I found it. At last, I found it. I found it. You found what? All my life, I've worked with automobiles, and I dedicated my life to finding it. My friends laughed at me. They said I'd never find it, but I kept plugging away. For years, I searched until yesterday. I found it. <laughs> Do you hear? I found it. Well, well, quick, tell us. What did you find? A parking space downtown. <laughs> The crisp little crackers perfectly flavored with the best Canadian cheese. Cheese Ritz, another fine product made by Christie. Try them too. Join us again next Thursday night. And every Thursday night, when Christie's making the fine biscuits for one hundred years, present Wayne and Schuster. This is the Transcribe Network, the Transcanada Network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. For free tickets to attend the Wayne and Schuster show, write to Wayne and Schuster, care of station CBL, Toronto. Our Canadians Abroad segment is going to be a little shorter tonight than usual, so I thought I'd insert an abbreviated episode of Rawhide. It was a CBC radio show, and the host was Max Ferguson, a very humorous broadcaster, and he was the one that did all of the voices. And uh, the episode that I'm going to play, it's only six minutes and... 45 seconds. It's from May 19th, 1961, and it's called 
Fish and Chips for Diefenbaker. And John Diefenbaker was a former Prime Minister of Canada. Enjoy! Good evening, it's old Rawhide from CBC Toronto, the Friday edition of the Rawhide Show. Mind you, I don't quite know what is going on. I have never seen a CBC studio decked out the way this little one is. I just came in about five minutes ago. The standard CBC color, the, all the halls and studios usually painted sort of a bilious green. They have now been painted great daubs of red, white, and blue. There's bunting draped all over everything hanging from the ceiling. Huge photograph of John Diefenbaker on one end of the studio wall and uh, John Fisher down at the other end. I think some little mice are probably getting ready for something here. On the floor, there's about a depth of two feet of uh, maple leaves. Of course, the last fall's maple leaves are wet and sort of a dirty brown color. And I don't know really what's going... Look at Buster! What? What is going on in here? Look at... Look at you. Might as well clear out right now because you are not getting uh, no award. I can tell you that right now. There is no award for you. So there's no point hanging around. Just clear out here and let's uh, get this out of here. You're, I've got the list here and your name is not it, so bust. J- just a second. Tell me what is going on. That's all I ask. What are, what are you talking about, awards? I don't suppose that in the narrow confines of the mean, prosaic little world in which you live, you would be aware of the fact that this this very week in which we now find ourselves is Canadian Citizenship Week. Great Scott, I hadn't realized. Yes, and this evening, we are sending out to the entire CBC radio network and any TV stations that, you know, they might want to carry the audio. It's a, it's a momentous broadcast. We are sending out the first commemorative... Commemorative. Commemorative <coughs> broadcast which it is hoped will become an annual highlight of the broadcasting year, eclipsing even the uh, Academy Awards. And now, if we can, please, for this auspicious broadcast of the Canadian Citizenship Awards, it's been a bad day for me, could we have our opening fanfare? The Ruby Canadian Citizenship Week Awards. Across the vast expense of this smiling land, wait, would you please, just a second. I perhaps misunderstood you. Did I? I didn't hear you say the Ruby Canadian Citizenship Awards, did I? That is exactly what you heard. We're not all slobs in Canada, you know. We're not all communists. Oh, dear. Thank goodness there is at least one among us who has enough pride in her native land to do more than just pay hollow lip service to Canadian Citizenship Week. Ruby of Ruby's Fish and Chips, 271 Lower Water Street, delivers anywhere in Canada in Halifax, <clears throat> has at her own expense drawn up these four beautifully hand aluminum, alumin, illuminated, and uh, yeah, she done it with the uh, crayons, and these beautiful scrolls with very touching wording, all done by Ruby, is going to be formally awarded on this historic broadcast this evening to the four Canadians, them four Canadians, who in the year just ended, and in the eyes of Ruby, has done the most to exemplify them intangible qualities, what is embodied in the stirring words, Canadian citizen. Along with each citation, and I have them here, we will be reading from these in just a moment. Along with each of these four citations, of course, will go not only the goodwill and the sincere gratitude of every Canadian who has any soul, but in addition, 
six months. Mark you, six months free supply of rubies, fish, and chips. Marvin Melobel, being a polished professional CBC announcer, has consented to lend his time and to this broadcast this evening to add a little tone and prestige to this evening's broadcast, and you will be hearing him reading in just a few moments the winner's name and the accompanying citation. Created, conceived, and hand-illuminated, <coughs> drawn with, like crayons, by Ruby of Ruby's Fish and Chips. Now, would you please shut your big, fat communist mouth and let me get on with this. Could I have that opening fan here again, please? <laughs> Because of his fearless and forthright denunciation of South Africa's apartheid policies at the recent Prime Minister's Conference in London, and because of his opening the doors of Canadian immigration to any Negro seeking escape from discrimination, Prime Minister Diefenbaker... Marvin, shh. I'll take... What? What's the trouble? I'm sorry. Uh, that's, that's not quite true. I mean, Canada's quota of colored immigrants uh, hasn't increased at all. He, he censured South Africa, but we're still not letting them in and in droves, so to speak. Well, did you hear that? Yes, I... Uh-oh, Ruby's goofed. Just a second. Very embarrassing. Uh, uh, information, please. Uh, Mrs., uh, what is the direct dialing area code for Alifax? Thank you very much. 112... Yeah, all right, fine. Very embarrassing. 129024 Boy, them new Halifax phone numbers, they look like the speedometer on a police cruiser. About 18 digits in them there. Uh, Ruby, hello. How are you? Yeah, you're, you're listening, are you? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's going pretty well. Yeah, we got it off the ground. It's off to a good start. But look, at, <clears throat> about this here award for the prime minister, like we just learned, I mean, he he uh, condemned South African uh, policy, that ap-hate-harp-hate-harp, that, you know, that policy. Yeah, that that's right. You got that straight. But they tell me... Uh, we still ain't, uh, no, they ain't pouring into Canada. They, they're still, uh, the quarters there. That's right. They're a little off on that one, Ruby. So what, what do you want to do with the award? Uh-huh. I see. Well, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, we just mentioned his name on the air. It's sort of half-given it to him, like... Well, okay. You want, you want to scratch completely? Oh, I see. He... I see, yeah. Okay. He still gets the fish and chips, but the award is out. Well, that's fine, Ruby. That's fair enough. Fair enough, Ruby. Yeah, yeah. Pretty wet down there. Well, we have a little rain up here, too, Ruby. Uh-huh. Well, you hurry up. We're on the air doing a proper documentary broadcast. Uh, I gotta go, Ruby. Thanks very much. Good night, talking, Ruby. See ya, kid. From our Canadians Abroad segment, for the first time, we're featuring Montreal-born Victor Jory in a series called Dangerously Yours. And this episode is from... June 20th, 1944. Dangerously yours. <laughs> Dangerously yours. A half hour of romance and adventure... Brought to you at this time each Sunday by the Vic Chemical Company. And today, bringing you a special short version of Masquerade, an exciting tale of espionage in the Budapest of 1915. I am adventure. 
In my name, men have traversed the highways, the byways, the skyways of the world. I have tramped the jungles with explorers. I have ridden the wilderness road on horseback and in covered wagons. I have gone 20,000 leagues under the seas and as many leagues above them. I have been the fire of Captain Kidd and Walter Raleigh and John Paul Jones and Francois Villon. That fire that burns in the heart of youth. That makes men dream and dare and conquer. I am the spirit of romantic adventure. I am dangerously yours. Today, follow me to a dark room in the Europe of 25 years ago, where a woman sits looking across a desk into eyes that are focused on history. Masquerade! Countess Rashola, you have our reasons for choosing you for this mission. You are very young, you are clever, and you are very beautiful. Because of your youth, you should be exceptionally valuable to us. I am at your command, Excellency. From now on, you'll forget my title. In all our communications, you will address me as Mr. Kolenkov. Now, let us get on to facts. I hope the Count will not be too difficult for you. He's a shrewd man. Now, when you have obtained our information, you will conceal the message in this silver pencil. Send it to me immediately. Trust no one. We rely on your discussion. I understand. Very well. Now, in these papers, you will find all the necessary information about Count Estefan. It has already been arranged just how you will meet him. Tonight, you will take the train to Budapest. <laughs> Good evening, madame. Have my bag sent to suite 913. Yes, madame. Good evening, Countess Rishola. Good evening. Welcome back, Countess Rishola. Thank you, Baudrey. Our table for one, madame. Is Count Estefan dining? Oh, he's at the table by the window, madame. I told Benson my price was five thousand dollars. This morning, when I was riding in the park, I saw Duffy on the bridle path, and he was. I beg your pardon, Madame. Here is the necklace and the rings and the bracelet you gave me, Luigi. Take them back. I'm through. Oh, just a moment, Madame. You've made a. Uh, madame, wait. Can I be of service, Count Estefan? Did you see the young lady who stopped at my table? Yes. She left these jewels. I don't understand. Do you know who she is? She is the Countess Rishola. She's in suite 913. Just a moment. Madame, you have made a mistake. My name is not Luigi. I have never seen you or these jewels before. I know. Won't you come in, Count Estefan? You... You know who I am? But of course. You were the most handsome man in the dining room. And I was very lonely. So I thought tonight I will have an adventure. I will make the acquaintance of the distinguished Count Estefan. How do you know my name? It was not difficult to find out. How did you know I wouldn't run off with your jewels? I took that chance. Besides, they're insured. <laughs> Are you angry? <laughs> no, I am not angry. 
If some kind fate wishes to send a beautiful lady to dine with me, I can only be grateful. You will do me the honor, won't you, madame? I shall be delighted. What would you like for dinner? What does a count eat? Pheasant's wings and peacock's breasts and... <laughs> what do you usually eat? <laughs> what does a contes usually eat? Almost anything. Well, then, uh, how about roast beef? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Right up, Monsieur Dame. And watch Mademoiselle in the red hat shoot the little clay pigeon. Step right up. I'll never be able to hit a thing. Don't let me down before all these people. I'll try. Good heavens. Hand the little lady down a dancing dog. <laughs> Look, Catherine, a shooting star. Did you wish? Oh, I didn't have time. Then there is something you wish for. Yes. What did you wish? I was wishing that we were two other people. Two people who need not say goodbye. Perhaps it can be that way. Forgive me, Your Lordship... But I'm not easy in my mind about this business. Oh, I wish you wouldn't go to see that woman tonight, sir. How could I stay away? Elbert, for the first time in my life, I'm completely head over heels in love. But, Countess, to find I know what you're thinking. I have a mission to perform, and I have no right to fall in love. But things don't always work out the way we'd like to have them work out, eh, Elbert? Oh, I don't know what's to come of all this, sir. No, Elbert, neither do I. Neither do I. But perhaps we shall find out tonight... I've received a message for you from Mr. Kolenkov. What is it? He said that you must obtain our information immediately. That you've taken too long. You ought to get it tonight. Tonight? Mr. Kolenkov has been lenient with you because this is your first mission. But he will not be lenient any longer. It is not wise to anger Mr. Kolenkov. He is a dangerous enemy. Forgive me, Catherine. I was sent to serve you as a maid, not to give you advice. You're right. Don't worry. The mission will be completed tonight. You have the silver pencil? Yes. Then I will wait for you at the appointed place. Do not fail us. The mission will be completed tonight. Catherine, I offer you the three things most dear to me. My heart, my country... And my dream. You are too generous. Catherine, you must listen to me. Since that first hour we met, I've been completely yours. There's never been anyone else for me. There never will. Oh, please, please don't say any more. There are worlds between us, worlds that can't be bridged with words. You said one night that you wished we were two different people. I think you may have that wish, Catherine. Why, what do you mean? Only that my country is close to its victory and may not need so much of my service any longer. Close to victory? I'm going to tell you something tonight, Catherine. Something that will put my life in your hands. Your life? It would mean my life were the news to get to certain circles, yes. Then don't tell me. How do you know you can trust me? I love you. And I believe you love me. 
you're quite wrong. This has been only an adventure to me. That isn't true, Catherine. It is true. You smiled at me. I was flattered. It was an adventure for a holiday mood. You may as well take my heart, Catherine. It's already full of you. You walked into it the day we met. You're a fool, Rudolf Estefan. <laughs> but isn't any man who falls in love? Do you know what you are to me? You're something to believe in again. You're a type of person that had ceased to exist for me. A fine and honest woman. Oh, my darling, you're such a child. Take your foolish little dream in your heart and go. Please go. What is it? What's wrong, my dear? You know nothing about me. You've known me only three weeks. Three weeks? Catherine, I've known you all my life. All your life. It's true. I've seen you in a thousand plays, read you in as many books. When I've heard beautiful music, I've thought she'd like that. I've looked at flowers and known that one day I'd give them to you. Oh, stop, stop. You must listen to me. I'm not that woman. Perhaps I was once, but I'm not now. You see, you were wrong. You can't trust me. Are you trying to tell me that someone whose name we both know and won't mention sent you? What are you saying? You see, I've known all along. I had Albert look you up the day you arrived. And it... it didn't make any difference? It didn't make any difference. You see, I trust you. You came here to betray me and to betray my country. That is your mission, Countess Richula. And yet I am so sure of your love that I will trust you with my life and what is far more valuable, the life of my country. I will betray you. If you do, you will betray yourself at the same time. Yes. Yes, I know. So you shall know my secret. Even now, as we sit here, there is a great network growing tighter around the foremost nations of the world. Treaties, pacts, alliances being formed against the man who sent you. Tonight, I will sign a pact that will set the wheels in motion to destroy him. Destroy him? No. He's made a great many mistakes. The greatest of all was sending you here, Catherine. Why? He knew I should love you. But he did not guess that you would fall in love with me. No. He didn't guess that. Then you do see that you cannot betray him. If I betray you, I betray myself. If I betray him, I betray my country. My country is very dear to me. Dearer than I? No. No, not dearer than you. Then will you help me defeat him? Help you? Defeat him? By telling me his plans. That's the only way I can hope to defeat him. We can't both win. You'll see, Catherine. I'm beginning to see. Then you will help me. By giving you any information I may possess concerning our plans? Yes. <sighs> You're very clever, aren't you? Oh, I can read you like a book now. You thought I was young and easily swayed. That you could make me love you. And I would throw over my country, my duty for That's you. That's not the way to look at it, Catherine. You weren't so wise after all. Because you've lost, you hear me? Lost. You guessed wrong in our little duel of wits. You forgot how close hate is to love. You don't know what you're saying, Catherine. You never loved me. You knew that I loved you. And you used that. Catherine, stop talking like a child. We're playing for countries now. Yes, we are, aren't we? This is a gun in my hand, Rudolph. I'd advise you to be careful what you say. Well, rather melodramatic, aren't you? 
Tell me, will I be the seventh notch on the gun or the eighth? <laughs> Do you mind if I smoke? Smoke? I always smoke at the theater. Somehow it enhances the performance. You can do anything you please, Rudolph. But you have very little time to do it in. You mean you're actually going to kill me? I mean just that. Well, go ahead. I'll do this my own way. Look, you already know my purpose in being here. Now you will either give me my information or I will kill you. You have until nine o'clock. You won't do it. You can't pull the trigger. You can't pull it because you love me. It takes a very brave and a very cold woman to do that, Catherine. I don't think you can. Isn't that true? Isn't that why you're waiting? That's not true. Or is it that you want to watch your victim? You want my heart to constrict with agony, my hands to shake. You want me to plead for my life so you can make a generous gesture and spare me. Sorry, Catherine, I don't seem to be in the mood for prayers tonight. You don't think I'll do it. That's why you're so brave. You don't think I'll do it. You wouldn't be so brave otherwise. You're a coward at heart. You lied to me. You deceived me. You tried to deceive me. I'm tired of listening to you. You gave me your heart, you know. You'd like me to hand it back whole again. But I won't. You'll live a long time yet, Catherine, an eternity without me. You will look into the faces of passers-by, hoping for something that will, for an instant, bring me back to you. You will find moonlit nights strangely empty, because when you call my name through them, there will be no answer. Always your heart will be aching for me, and your mind will give you the doubtful consolation that you did a brave thing. You dare to talk of bravery. What else do we have to talk about, Catherine? For me, there will never be another woman but you. But for my heart, there is another love that must come before you. My country. You're so still. Your face is like ice. What are you thinking, Catherine? What does anything you can say matter? You betrayed me with words. What good are words? Your heart is breaking. If I fail now, I should deserve to die. You tricked me into loving you. Aren't you forgetting that you came here for the same purpose? I couldn't have betrayed you. I tried to tell you. You said you already knew. I was as honest as I knew how to be. Do you think I wanted to love you? Knowing where you came from and what your mission was? Don't you suppose that every hour we were together I was thinking she's just pretending? I wasn't. I loved you. And I loved you so much I let you pretend. Because you brought something to my days I couldn't stand the thought of losing. Listen to your heart, Catherine. Feel it pounding. Your time is up. Then my last words. I love you, Catherine. You're determined to die with a lie on your lips. I love you, Catherine. Oh, God. Albert. Where are you, sir? I heard a shot. Help me up. I'll be all right. Help me up. Oh, I knew you should never have come here. I'll get a doctor. No, 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 no. No, it's too late. I waited right by the door like you told me to, sir. The other woman went downstairs about ten minutes ago. Please let me get a doctor, sir. No, no. I, I want you to send a message, though, at once. The usual destination. Yes, sir. 
Kalenkov. The masquerade is over. X-32 reports that Countess Richola is trustworthy and loyal. You may entrust in her care any documents. She will not betray you. Report case 255 closed. X-32. Conceal it as usual, Albert, in the silver pencil. Please let me call her back. You must tell her the truth before it's, before it's too late. Tell her the truth? Tell her the truth so that she will watch the stars through tears instead of following the one cold star that is her destiny? No, no, Albert. Let her think I never loved her. One day, she will follow a flag to the same fate as mine. We must leave her the strength for that hour. I am Adventure. Today you have shared the adventure of Masquerade with me. Next week I bring you Jungle Harvest, take you to the tropic paradise of Samburan to share the adventure of a gentle, peace-loving man suddenly forced to pit his wits against the sinister and the dangerous in order to save his own life and the life of the girl he loves. Until then, I am dangerously yours. The clock on the wall says we gotta go. Thanks so much for joining me and hope to see you next week. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.